the first century world, it was no exaggeration to say that all roads lead to Rome. Rome was the center of the empire, the capital of commerce, and a symbol of power that still echoes even in the modern world. One of those who took the road to Rome was the Apostle Paul. But rather than going to marvel at the might of the empire, Paul confronted Rome with the news that the world's true Lord did not live amidst the temples and marbled halls of Caesar's palace. Instead, Paul preached that the true king of the world was a crucified Jew who was also God in the flesh. It was to a small community of Jewish and Gentile believers that Paul wrote his greatest exposition of the Christian faith, the letter to the Romans. When we explore the whole map of Paul's theology of Jesus, Israel, salvation, justification, and community, we discover a road that not only invites us to consider our own salvation, but God's saving plan for all of creation in a road worth walking. In order to follow Jesus, we must take the same road that he took, the road less traveled. That means talking about the hard things, doing the hard things, taking steps forward that many others will not dare to. The road less traveled is traveled for a reason, and it's worth it. Good morning. Are you guys cold? So here's the deal, right? We're freezing now. You're going to be thankful for this when it's 136 degrees this afternoon. So soak this in. Appreciate it. I promise you it'll be worth it in a few hours. Um, we, we can turn the temperature up a little bit maybe to try to soften the frost a little bit. Um, so yeah, we are, we are jumping into a, a series on... And through the book of Romans in, entitled The Road Less Traveled. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of insight to how my sermon prep process goes. Uh, just, just set the stage, and it won't take too long. But my, my process each week, week in and week out, is, is typically the same. You, you get the Bible out, I've got pens and highlighters and a notebook, and you, you read scripture and you start just making notes. You highlight things, you circle things, you ask questions. Um, sometimes I draw pictures. They don't ever really mean anything. So like I just, I just study, right? Uh, once I get through that phase, I pull in commentaries. I have online databases that I use to, to study, to try to, to, to hear from people much smarter than me, trying to determine, uh, one, what did the author mean for the original audience? And then two, is how do we, in 2022, in Sheridan, Wyoming, live this out? How does it apply to us today? And once I get through that process, I start outlining. And when I start outlining, it is most of the time a relatively smooth process because I already have direction. I feel like I, I know where God is calling me to go and, and I just kind of go through through the process and, and rarely rarely do I start over. Okay. <laughs> this week was different. Extremely different. I, I found myself um, frozen in fear, knowing exactly where God was asking me to go, but being completely and totally unwilling, at least initially, to go there. It's not an exaggeration. I don't think to say that the, the sermon, the outline that I have, have here is maybe version 10. Like, I have uh, piles and piles of paper heaping out of my trash can in my office where I started something, I crumbled it, started over, crumbled it. 
this week we embark on, again, the journey entitled The Road Less Traveled. And, and I, can't, I can't overstate how vital the book of Romans is to our faith. As followers of Jesus Christ, like, like this book is full of theological gold. Paul talks about the depravity of the heart. He talks about justification through faith and salvation by grace and, and, and sanctification. Every, everything that we need to do as followers of Jesus or to become followers of Jesus, really, you can find in the book of Romans. The church has a process called Romans Road. I don't know if you've heard that. Like, it literally is using the book of Romans to walk people through the plan of salvation. This book is extremely important, and I have been anticipating in excitement walking through this study with the exception of one sermon. Today's sermon. I'll read the text here in just a moment, but Paul presents us in the first 30 verses of Romans chapter 1 with a really significant challenge. He addresses a social issue that is extremely divisive in our culture, and one that is tumultuous to say the least. But he begins by, by his normal greeting. He talks about wanting to visit Rome, and then in verse 18, he moves into what the world looks like when humanity turns its back against God. And he gives some specific examples on the dangers of that. And so we as readers, as we process it, are, are hit square in the face with issues that aren't just 2,000 years ago relevant, but 2022 relevant. And so I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to talk through what this is going to look like for the next couple of minutes, okay? So Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Here's what Paul says. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although God knew, or for although they knew God, rather, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, being birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their woman exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with uh, their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a deprived mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. 
They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. It's a lot of text, and I know that. It's a lot of heavy text. And there are two things that, that we as a church just love to talk about. God's wrath and divisive social issues. Sarcasm is implied there. It's okay to laugh still at the sermon sometimes, I promise. So what's happening in this text? What are we seeing? Paul begins to paint a picture of what life looks like when humanity turns its back on the gospel. When it pushes aside the biblical truth for self-gratification. What humanity looks like when it begins to focus on not thy will be done, and thy, and that sentence is God, and, and my will be done. We begin to see what we've talked about over the course of the last several weeks, that there is a desensitization that happens when one steps into a life of sin. I think one of the greatest dangers of sin is that as you step into sin, it becomes easier to step further into sin. Let me give you an example. Growing up, I had a, a curfew, right? I don't remember exactly what time it was, but, but let's just say midnight. And, and I was really good because I knew what would happen if I broke curfew with my mom and dad. And so I was always on time. Uh, but there was one night where something happened. I'm, I'm certain I wasn't doing anything wrong, uh, but, but I, I ended up being late for curfew. And I remember just like stressing. I was sick at my stomach, like, oh no, I can't believe I've done this. I've let my parents down. And not only that, I'm probably going to get in trouble. I'm going to lose my car keys. I won't be able to go and have fun next weekend. I was sick. And then I walked walked into the house just knowing the hammer was going to drop, and to my surprise, my parents were still asleep. So I turned off the light that I was supposed to turn the light off, and went downstairs to my room, thinking, well, maybe they'll just talk to me about it in the morning. I woke up in the morning, no one said a thing. I said, hmm. And so the next weekend, I pushed the envelope a little bit further. And a little further, and a little further. I, I'm sure I got caught somewhere along the way, but eventually I got to the place where I was like, you know, as long as my car's in the parking lot, by the time they get up, or the, the driveway, by the time they get up in the morning, I'm good to go. I was desensitized to the sin that I was committing. I think that's the danger of living a life of sin. And, and that's what Paul is talking about here with humanity, is that they, they began to slowly turn their back against God, and then over time... They're further and further and further away until they get to a place they get to a place where they've forgotten the truth entirely. God then in this text looks at humanity, this segment of humanity and says, okay, if this is the life that you want to live then so be it. God turns them over to their sinful ways. Free will is an amazing thing, but it's a dangerous thing. It's a great gift but with a great gift comes significant responsibility. C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Great Divorce that I think is applicable to this. He says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. 
Without self-choice, there could be no hell. And so when, when, when you, you turn your back against God over and over and over again, and you step deeper and deeper and deeper into a life that is contrary to God's word and his plan and his will, at some point, according to the text, God says, okay, your will be done. This is where I think humanity finds itself in this segment of the text, and we'll talk more about that next week. This week, however, I want to spend some time talking about the elephant in the room or in this text. One of the most culturally charged, socially divisive issues and conversations that I think we probably as a church can have. Paul writes, and he talks about some of the conditions of sinful humanity. In verses 26 and 27, I'll read it one more time. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Verse 27, in the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so I suspect there are varying degrees of responses to that passage. I think for some of you in this room, it makes you very angry. Others of you in this room, you're very angry, but for an entirely different reason. Others read this passage and you think about a friend or a loved one, or maybe even yourself. Others of you might be thinking, here we go with another anti-gay sermon. Others of you are probably trying to figure out how to leave quietly without making a scene. <laughs> the reality of sitting underneath Scripture, not above it, is that we will be, or there will be verses, ideas, and teachings that will put us at odds with culture. There are places in God's Word that will make us uncomfortable and unnerved. And I'm extremely uncomfortable right now and extremely unnerved. So we have as a body of believers have, I think, a choice to make. We have some options. I think the first option that we have is we see a text like this and we simply ignore it. We skip on to something better and we don't talk about it. We don't acknowledge it. We just skip past it. I have considered that option quite a bit this last week. The second thing that we can do is we can take verses like this and we can just assume that this is just a, a cultural thing or it, this was 2,000 years ago. It doesn't apply in 2022. So we take our own personal biases and positions and feelings and we use that to see Scripture. We've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. I think that's a dangerous proposition, so it's not something that I'm willing to do. The third option that we have, and I would suggest that this is probably the best option, is that we sit underneath the teachings of God and we look for ways to reconcile this in a way that's Christ-like. Remember that Christ, when he came, didn't simply come with truth. John says he came with truth and then grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And so I think there's a way to do this that honors Jesus. But to see, be successful in this message, and I, I don't often ask of something from you when I preach. Like, rarely do I do this. But I'm, I need you to do something for me today. First thing is that I need you to stick with me until the end. 
no matter how you feel, no matter where you come at this position, and I, I know you, I love you, and I know we, we, we don't often agree, or we don't always agree on everything, and I get that. I'm okay with that if you are, but I need you to hang with me, hang with me to the end. The second thing that I need you to do is I need you to, if you think about it, pray for me and us during this message. I, I think this, because this is so divisive, Satan would love nothing more than to use this to create division in this thing that God is doing. I don't want that to happen. So if you are someone who can multitask, I'd ask for you to pray as you listen. And you know what? If you want to pray through this sermon and then come back and listen to the second sermon, I'm okay with that too. It's typically better the second time around anyway. The third thing that I need you to do, lastly, is I need you to afford me some grace. I'm, I'm going to read directly from my notes here so I don't mess this up. I am terrified of misrepresenting scriptures here. It's a complex issue. Anyone who says otherwise hasn't took time to study it. The reality of the conversation that we're going to have is that there were going to be people who believe I was too harsh in what I'm about to say towards the gay community. I'm going to be labeled as anti-gay or potentially bigoted. Others will hear the next 20 minutes and believe I wasn't hard enough, that I didn't take a hard enough stance on this issue. It's rare that I have a message where I feel like I'm walking into it where I'm going to upset both sides of an argument. But I need grace. My goal is to simply preach truth. It's my heart with this. That's why I have struggled we have talked as a staff and prayed like I simply want to be true to God's word. And my hope is that through that truth, others and maybe you will be able to step closer into a relationship with Jesus. Because, and here's the spoiler in all of this, like he's the answer. By the way, that's how this ends. All social issues, every single one of them is solved by the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, if you can commit to doing these, Things, I'm confident we can walk through this together. Okay? So when I read this text and I, I, I process through it, and again, I'm making notes. Uh, my questions that I have as, as I'm walking through this, and maybe even anticipating some of your questions, is, is what should the church's view on homosexuality be? Let's just go right there. Let's just, who are we as a Wesleyan church? Where do we take a stance on homosexuality and same-sex marriage and all of those types of things? And so I, I want to do something I don't typically do. I'm going to read straight from our Wesleyan discipline, because this is kind of our official statement, and then we're going to build from there, okay? So here's what our discipline says about human sexuality. The Wesleyan church maintains a biblical view of human sexuality, which makes the sexual experience within the framework of marriage, a gift of God, and to be enjoyed as communion of a man and woman, as well as for the purpose of procreation. Sexual relationships outside of marriage and sexual relationships between persons of the same sex are immoral and sinful. Yet, we believe the grace of God is sufficient to overcome both the practice of such activity and the inclination leading to this practice. Practice, And that's from the Wesleyan Discipline, our rule book. So I think that the next logical question I have is why would the church take this position? Why? In 2022, why is it that we seem to be at such odds with culture and society? Maybe the, a better question is, why does it matter to God? Why would God care who someone loved or how someone was attracted? Why can't someone follow 
their heart's desire. How do we reconcile verses like Romans 1, 26 through 27, or rather Romans 1, 18 through 32, with verses like 1 John 4, 7, Dear, God, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and, and knows God. If homosexuality is a sin, and we'll get to that in a second, then how should we as the church respond to it? How do we respond to a community that we are seemingly at odds with? And those are just a few of the questions I had. We probably could spend six months talking about this. So let's start with the top. Why take the aforementioned position? Why is it that the church, the Wesleyan church in 2022, when other denominations are affirming same-sex marriage and those types of relationships, why is it that we as Wesleyan church stick with the position that we stick with? And the answer to that question is simply because of Scripture. Paul, in addition to Romans chapter 1, mentions this type of behavior or lifestyle two other times in his letter to various churches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he lists homosexuality in a list of other sins. So it isn't the only sin in a list of other sins. He says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed You were sanctified You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ And by the spirit of our God As he's writing to Timothy He says we also know That the law is made not for the righteous But for the, the lawbreakers and the rebels The ungodly, the sinful And the unholy and irreligious For those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Part of a biblical worldview is that we submit to the Word of God, even when we don't like it, as authoritative, inerrant, infallible, and inspired. So the position that we as a church take, the Wesleyan church, that we here in Sheridan, Wyoming take isn't a social position that we take. You need to understand that, but rather a biblical one. So the next question I have is, why would it matter to God? Why is this a sin? I have a valid question. And when you read back through Romans 26 and 27, if we could go to that, Romans 1, 26 and 27, I think Paul gives us maybe some clues. He says, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations with unnatural ones. That, that last part is key. Verse 27. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed, committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So Why? Why is this something that God is so concerned about? Why is this classified as a sin? In both cases, Paul lists or identifies homosexuality or homosexual behavior as something that is unnatural. I think that's the key. 
See, the people in Rome had forgotten what I would suggest we here in this culture sometimes forget is that they were created by God. The, the God of the Bible wasn't simply an object to be worshipped. He was the author of life. Like, he literally formed man with his hands. He shaped him. He breathed his breath into their lungs. That's how they were created. He knows better than anybody else what's best for them. And so why is this something that's classified as a sin? Well, it's because that, that's not how God designed us. We get, um, um, we get things, oftentimes they come with manufacturers' warnings and labels. Uh, the, the, an illustration I have, and, and I'm just, I'm trying to, to, to create a, um, I don't mean to be insensitive, so don't, don't put this too much of what we're talking about, but when I think about, I, you get a, a weed eater, okay, and, and it's a two-stroke motor, and the manufacturer says, hey, you have to operate this mixing gas and oil. Now, if you ignore the manufacturer's label on that, it'll start, it'll run, it'll run for a while, Casey, a little bit. Maybe, right? You don't know. But, but at some point, because you're not adhering to the manufacturer's warning on the label, it's not going to work the way it was supposed to work. And that's kind of where we find ourselves talking about this issue of sexuality, is that the manufacturer has developed us, he has created us, he knows us from the inside out. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knows every hair on our head, he knows every moment in our lives, he knows what's best for us. And so why is this something that God takes so seriously? It's because he created us and he knows us. He knows how we were supposed to operate. It's difficult to, to swallow sometimes. So then, how do we reconcile that with the question, or the statement that we oftentimes hear, well, this is how I was born. You can't tell me this is how I am not supposed to operate because I was born this way. And to that Honestly and truly, I would say, I don't know. I, I don't know. I can't begin to empathize with the way that someone feels. I can't. What I can tell you from my personal experience and from reading God's word is that I was born with a propensity towards sin and towards things that aren't honoring to God. We won't get into what those are, but I'm certain you have those as well. And so the decision that we have to make is what am I going to run to? Am I going to run to the things that I am drawn to naturally because of the depravity of my heart, because of the brokenness, the stain that sin has left on my heart that causes me to seek things that aren't of God? Or am I going to run back to my Creator who promises to redeem me and wash away those inclinations and sins? Those in Rome chase the desires of their hearts, looking looking for their identity, their purpose, and how they felt and what they were drawn to. Which I think leads me to another question, perhaps, is, is when we think about sexual expression and freedom, oftentimes, like we associate with, it's a very intimate thing, it's a very intimate thing. And, and part of that sexual revolution that our culture went through decades ago was the fact that through that sexual expression, you find freedom and identity. So when I read through the scripture, God says that that's, that's the wrong place to find freedom. 
It's the wrong place to find identity. It's not your sexual orientation that defines who you are. It's the God of this universe. It's not what you're drawn to that defines who you are. You're not defined by who you love, but rather the one who loves you. And the moment that we as a culture, the moment that culture seeks things other than God to find their identity is the moment that they lose it. And I think maybe for most of us here in this room, this part of the message is, okay, you've heard this before. You, you grew up relatively conservative, evangelical church. Hopefully this isn't the first time that you've heard this. And so I think we can get to a place where, okay, yes, I, I see scripture. I might not like it. I might not even uh, really agree with it, but I'll submit to it that this is, in fact, sinful. I think that's only half of the conversation. The question that I want to end with as we process through this is how do we respond? How do we respond to this? How do we respond to human sexuality? How do we respond to the fact that culture is so far against or different from what we just read and saw in God's word? See, I think the church has done a really good job most of the time identifying this as a sinful behavior but I'm not entirely sure we've done the best job responding to it. So how do we respond to this issue and issues like it? Because the reality is, is that we're going to be at odds with society and culture with other issues. This is just one. This is one of the things that we like to talk about, but there are many things that we find ourselves flowing against the course, the flow of culture. So I think the first step is, we, is, is I process through this, okay? First thing that we have to do is we have to understand that we are all sinners. Paul's going to say later on in Romans, you've probably already read it, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You understand, you know, the first part of that is so significant. It isn't, hey, this group of people has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. These, these people over here, you got to watch out for them because they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No, it's all. It's every one of us. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I understand all to mean me too. That's me. And that's you. I think oftentimes the church has taken a position of moral superiority, and I think that's a mistake. Because when you look at it, again, through the lens of God's word, if homosexuality is in fact a sin, which I would agree that it is, then that isn't different than the things that I deal with as well. So we have a tendency, we have a tendency, and culture does this, to, to um, dislike some sins but hate others. Reality is God hates them all. We understand, we understand that we are all sinners. Jesus pointed this out more than once in his ministry, by the way. As he was standing up against the Pharisees, he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. He called them out on it. The second thing we have to do, once we're able to admit that we are sinners and we, we, we humble ourselves and we put aside any moral superiority that we have, is we have to let Jesus do the heavy lifting. We have to let Jesus do the heavy lifting. Our focus on responding to same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage, however you want to label it, should be to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
to share the hope of Jesus. Church, our job is not to fight against the symptom, but to share the cure of the disease. Let me say that again. Our job is not to fight against the symptom, but to share the cure for the disease. And, and that, that's not just homosexuality. That's everything. Right? That's everything. Sometimes we put the cart before the horse. We, 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 we get ahead of what Jesus is trying to do in the person's life. And I said before, I gave you the spoiler alert. Jesus is the answer to all of that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to all of this. Our job is to preach the hope of Jesus. John wrote, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Can I, can I tell you something that's going to make a lot of you really uncomfortable in this room? No one goes to hell for being a homosexual. Hell is full of people who have rejected God and the gospel. Think about that. Spiritual transformation trumps sexual orientation every day of the week. If a person is willing to hand over his or her heart to Jesus Christ, then there is nothing, I mean nothing, too difficult for him to take care of. We put the cart before the horse. It's not our job to cleanse someone of their sin. We've forgotten that. It's our job to share the hope of Jesus Christ. We teach people how to submit to Scripture. We teach people how to lay over your heart to Jesus. So they say, look, like Jesus is willing to forgive you of everything. You just have to put your faith in him. Like, that's our job. That's the communication. And then Jesus takes care of everything else. Now we're there to walk alongside him and disciple and love and encourage and, and rebuke if necessary, right, with Scripture. But, but, man, sometimes we play the role of the Savior. That's not what he's called us to be. So if we're able to admit that we are sinners, if we let Jesus do the heavy lifting, then I think our last option, our last thing that we can do is to stand in truth supported by grace. Stand under truth supported by grace. And this, this is where God really spoke to me this week, right? When I think about me submitting to the word of God and standing under scripture. See, see we, can't, we can't stop proclaiming truth. Like, we cannot stop calling a sin by its name because culture says that we shouldn't. We can't. We have to stand in this. But we also have to recognize that the only way you and I are able to reconcile to that truth is because we are being elevated up by the grace of God. So I stand under it, knowing that the grace underneath me is the only thing that gets me close to it. We stand under truth supported by grace. So how do we do that? How do we model that? I think we sincerely love everybody. Doesn't matter where they are, what, what they come from, what their story is, really what their lifestyle is, our job is to love. Jesus talked about this, and he modeled this over and over and over again. I'm pretty sure there's a verse that says, what good is it to love people who love you back? Try loving your enemies. 
Loving people who disagree with you. Loving people who don't take the position that you take. We are called to sincerely love. And I think if we can do that, I think we can show some shocking hospitality. <sighs> what happens? What happens with people, a group of people, who see firsthand what the love of Christ is like when a group of people who is at seemingly at odds with them, or the world says is at odds with them, opens their arms and welcomes them. What changes in their life when they actually see all of the things that we talk about? <laughs> when we, we love as Jesus loved. What you don't understand when we talk about hospitality, maybe you do, let me remind you, is that, that Jesus modeled that to the very end. You understand who he had supper with his last meal, right? Is the person that was going to have him killed and betrayed. And yet he was there. He shared bread and wine and fellowship. Next, and I think this is key, is we selflessly serve. In any way, shape, or form. Pastor Dustin told a story uh, I should have talked to you about this before, but the, it was a group of people who, it was a church that had a group protesting the church for something. And I don't, was it this particular issue? Abortion. Well, there's another social issue. You know what the church did? They loved, they were hospitable, and they served. They actually went outside to the protest and served them coffees, cookies, snacks, and just loved on them. What happens when we as the church actually, truly become the hands and feet of Jesus. We love serving each other. That's easy. We love having meals together. That's easy. What happens when we love those who don't love us back or who disagree with us? The three tenets of our, of our church, if we can put those up, it's belong, believe, Become. So the Wesleyan Church, we, we use these three words, and if you've taken Ignite 101, Pastor Dustin has walked you through these. I think sometimes we get the order of these reversed or mixed up. So I, I, I have grown up in places or experienced churches that says that you need to you need to become first. I need you to be like us first, and, and then if you believe that's great. But, but, but for sure become first, believe, and then, then you can belong. Then you can be a part of us. I don't think Jesus modeled it that way. See, I think, I think Jesus said, no matter who you are or where you come from, you belong to me. Come to me, all you who are tired and weary. I will give you rest. I love you regardless. Come. I don't care about your baggage. I don't care about your story. I don't care what you even believe at this point. I need you to know you are welcome and you are loved because you are my child, that you belong here. And then when they belong here, they're gonna begin to experience the love of Christ and they're gonna see things about hope and joy and peace and they're gonna believe. And because they believe in the name of Jesus and because he is faithful to do what only Jesus can do, guess what he's gonna do? He's gonna make them the person that he intended them to be. You see, when they belong and they believe in Christ, he's gonna do the heavy lifting and they're gonna become. And we as a church, I think because, and it's not your fault, right? Like, don't, like, I, I'm a part of this too. I think we get so, I don't know if it's, we're afraid. I don't know if we lack faith. I, I don't know what it is. But this creates space for us to be vulnerable, 
I don't like it. I'm sure you don't either. But I'm convinced that if we want to be the light for Jesus that he's calling us to be, this is where we have to model. We have to love no matter what. We, we, have, to, we have to be hospitable no matter what. We have to serve even people who despise you and us. And I promise you, promise you, if we're willing to do that, I think God will use this body here to change the world. And certainly per people's perception of who Jesus is. And that's our goal, right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for oh, just your grace. I thank you for the, the ability to, to, to have uncomfortable conversations. God, I, I, I don't know, I don't know what, what, what's happening inside the hearts of the people listening here online or in person, but God, I, my, my prayer is that, is that they would hear your voice. And, and whatever it is they need to reconcile this, God, that you would give it to them. That, that, that they would see your truth but, truth, but they also would experience your love and your grace and your peace and your hope and your joy. Father, help us be a church that models and embodies who you are in everything that we do. Not just over this issue, this issue of sexuality, Father, but, but everything. Because it, if it's not this, it's going to be something else. You said the world's going to hate us. That, that, that standing under truth is going to create tension and difficulty. And so, God, give us the ability in those situations to love well, to open our arms well, to serve well. So it's in the, <laughs> the amazing name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.